in three, two, one. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Mind Jam podcast. And today we have my most favorite veterinary scientist in the whole world, Dr. Anna Helm Bjorkman from the University of Helsinki in Finland. And she just came out with a study that is making a massive buzz. I'm sure you've seen it all over the internet. Yes. And Anna, it's so great to see you again. You are our favorite scientist. In my opinion, you take common sense things that we know to be true and prove them with science. And we love you for that. And you always have a lot going on in, in your research lab, which we love. But this study, first of all, what was your inspiration to do this study? And then talk a little bit about what you found. Thank you for having me, first of all, and uh, and for the kind words. And I've been treating dogs with atopy for a long, long time uh, with food and with uh, nutraceuticals and things. And Dr. Becker, can you explain like just super quick to a lot of the people out there what the term atopy actually means? Atopy is this allergic condition that can occur where the immune system overreacts to things in the environment. And so this term atopic dermatitis is this internal immunologic response that happens creating really miserable dogs. And it's such a significant issue in veterinary medicine that she wanted to devote time and energy into researching it because we don't have a lot of answers. We know it's epidemic in the dog population and we know it creates a lot of dogs that end up on a life of steroids or a lifetime of itching and scratching that makes their quality of life really diminish. I've been treating dogs with allergy for a long, long time with food and I wanted to see if it worked. So we did this kind of clinical trial where we put them on two different diets. For those that are watching that didn't read the study, during the survey, you went through the list and the guidelines, and you had a panel of dogs that were fed ultra-processed foods. And so by ultra-processed foods, what category is that for people that may be feeding specific diets? Well, actually, what we did was we were looking at raw food contra dry food. We kind of wanted to take two very specific groups, which are most usual ones. And also when people feed raw or dry, they very often feed only raw or only dry. Whereas when they use these sausages and these canned foods, they mix very much. So it's kind of a hard group to, to put in there. So, so that's why we chose these kind of dry kibble and raw foods. After four months of being on two different diets, we didn't get that super difference that we thought that we would get. And that made us think that maybe it needs to be done a bit earlier. We just wanted to kind of know what happens when the immunity of puppies during the mummy time and during pregnancy, uh, lactation, also then on the first kind of weeks and, and months of the baby. I love this study because it sheds light on the fact that despite the fact that there may be a genetic predisposition with certain breeds, that there's still the potential to modulate things in terms of epigenetic potentials. Rodney and I, because we're writing this book about longevity, we're interviewing some of the top geneticists about are certain breeds potentially too far gone to improve their genetic profile? Are there some breeds that have been so inbred? Is there any hope? And what I loved about this study is it did demonstrate that there is hope and in such an easy, simple thing. I mean, if you think about nourishment, 
pregnant moms have to eat and how wonderful that your study demonstrates that in theory, just by changing the diet of the pregnant mom, you have the ability to improve those puppies' quality of lives. And like you said, several generations, to me, I feel like this is reparative genetics in action using nutrition, which is really exciting. I totally agree. And also we found all the normal things like that the breed is very important, that the mummy, if she has had allergy as a disease herself, that that is important. And also what we found before that if the dogs are are more white than than other colored, then they have a bigger risk of, of getting atopy. Finding these things that people found before actually validates our results even more. Because if we wouldn't have found them, then you could always think that, okay, maybe there's something, you know, crooked with the data or something. So so this actually strengthens the article. So, Dr. Anna, when a study like this goes out, first of all, it was a massive study. Let's just get that out of the way quickly. By massive, <laughs> I mean, there was like 12,000 participants. Is that right? Is it like 12,000 surveys that you had to go through? Yes. Yeah. So that's very, it's massive. Holy smokes, 12,000 surveys to have to go through to put to put together this study. Now, how am I reading this as if I'm reading this as a pet owner? Because I was going through the comment sections and I found that there was a debate between, well, it has to be organic. No, it doesn't have to be organic. It has to do with more heat, less heat. And people were a little bit confused in that comment section. Actually, I, I would say that at this stage, there's about 10 different hypotheses of what is the kind of the main thing. And personally, I do not think that there is one main thing. Uh, heat has a lot of potential of being kind of the, because you have the myelard re reactions, which is kind of of uh, heating up sugars and or carbohydrates and proteins and fats together, which means they make these toxic substances. Uh, you also lose a lot of the potential of vitamins when you heat them up. But then again, just being not uh, sterile is, is also a very big hypothesis because what we have seen in allergy in children and where we have a lot of studies of that, children and animals living out on farms or, or going out a lot or living in houses that are not so clean, if there's more children in the family, it actually helps the dog in the family to not get allergy and vice versa. So you have this, what with we call the uh, kind of hygiene hypothesis. So that's also a very big one. So it's hard to say uh, how much that, but I'm really looking forward to doing studies where we just could pin down what is the major thing. If the breeder wants to do his best, let's just talk in like in practical reality here. The odds of trying to convince or financially convince somebody that they're going to have to switch a whole litter of puppies and a whole litter of dog to start feeding them fresh whole live food just seems like for some people it could be economically impossible. So do you think the onus falls more on the breeder to have to make that move? Or do you think the onus falls on the manufacturer to shift the manufacturing techniques that maybe the techniques that are being used today aren't the best for, for the future of dogs and puppies and the next generation of dogs that come in? That's a good question. I would say that probably it's, we're going to, to see it happening both ways. I would say to any breeder who now reads this or listens to this and, and wants to make a small step to doing something better, we have some preliminary data saying that about one-fifth of the food 
if you change one fifth, like 20% of your food to raw food, you, you already start to make an impact on your animal's health. So that's a very good first step. And uh, then I think that actually the industry, they will have to get interested in this just because for them, it's a question of money. And they don't want to be left out from this new movement. And the more we publish, and not only we, but other groups as well, I think that it's going to happen just by itself because they're not going to let somebody else take over the market. You know, your your findings dovetail so nicely with what other researchers have hypothesized and or are working on right now. So for instance, Steve Brown has started working on a new project called the Canine Healthy Soil Project, where as a breeder 30 years ago, he saw in his own dog lines that puppies that were exposed to healthy soil between birth and two weeks of age he just found anecdotally that with his own litters, those puppies had substantially less allergic inflammatory reactions throughout their life. I think it's fantastic that scientists in all parts of the world are coming to these conclusions on their own, and yet it really unifies this concept of food matters and environment matters. And it's interesting because at least in the U.S., when I went to vet school, they said, listen, this is an, an immune system overreaction that diet will not and cannot fix. But that's not true. I mean, you're finding that epigenetically, what I learned 25 years ago is old news and potentially inaccurate news. First of all, I love proving books wrong. And it's not the first time. And, and I think that that's something that actually what I tell my students as well, it, it's something that, that science should do. It should correct itself. But it just takes a long time in school books. So very often we, we read things there that are not accurate anymore. Also pertaining to, to Brown's work is that in Finland, we're actually putting soil into the kindergartens in the cities because they've seen that it's so helpful against allergy and asthma in kids. So they're actually doing just what he's doing with his dogs, but with kids in, in the cities. So that's really nice. Dr. Anne, I wanted, is there something very fascinating too on the bottom of the, the press release? And I know Dr. Karen Becker alluded to this earlier. Of course, you know, we talked about, you know, the feeding of processed food, you know, has a higher risk of your puppies developing future allergies. But on the bottom, there was reference to some other benefits that you found in that survey pertaining to sunlight, as Dr. Karen Becker alluded to, soil. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what else you found that was better for puppies? Yes, uh, we, we could find uh, that sunlight exposure in the early postnatal period, which means that, you know, just after being born. And uh, then also dogs that had a normal body condition uh, score, which means that they were not too slim or too fat. Then there was actually something that was very interesting was maternal deworming during pregnancy. And uh, this was something that means that, you know, that the mother actually got a dewormer when she was pregnant. And we thought that, you know, why is this in, in any way a positive thing? And uh, I actually went to a conference in a raw food conference in the States uh, about a year ago. And there was this woman who was showing us a slide about the anti-cancer properties on a dewormer 
dewormer, which is usually used for dogs. And it's actually the same dewormer that we use for pregnant uh, dogs and for also for very small puppies because it's not very toxic. And so I thought that, I mean, it's, it's a very potent anti-inflammatory drug. I don't know if it has anything to do with it, but these are kind of the small pearls that you find sometimes when you do research. So what I have understood now when I've been reading research is that people are given this dog dewormer as a drug for, for against cancer. I remember reading that article and I remember it showed up, Dr. Anna, all over my newsfeed that there was, it was actually, it was a news broadcast that there was people claiming that they were either suppressing or reversing cancer, taking these dog dewormers. But I know it was being hauled all off of the internet because people were concerned that, you know, people were going to run away with this with the cure. Do you remember that, Dr. Becker? I do. And I will tell you that some of these dewormers have been used as a trial and error method for COVID as well. This brings me to my next question that if pertaining to diagnosis of COVID, rather than giving a potentially unproven dewormer, that maybe we could use our dog sniffers to be able to do early detection. What did you find, Dr. Anna, with your research pertaining to dogs identifying viral positive humans? Well, that was so cool. Like, you know, I work with these dogs that are sniffing cancer for many years already. I think that it was kind of the obvious thought to have is that I wonder if they could smell COVID as well. But what happened was that we had people that spontaneously have kind of sent us cancer samples before. And then people started sending us also samples that they've been tested today with COVID and uh, and here I'll send you my urine. So all of a sudden we had a lot of samples that were already tested. Then we took our best dog knowing that in urine there should be no virus by itself. And then we tested ourselves and then we thought that, okay, we'll just try. So we took the dogs out of our normal lab because we didn't want to spread any COVID in our cancer labs. But um, it took us four hours to teach our best dog to find COVID. Other groups now after us have reported that it took them about four days. And I think that we just were happy to have a lot of good samples and a good dog. One thing that was very interesting was that at the start, we thought that maybe he's not so good at this because he was telling us that two of the negatively tested urines were positive and he wouldn't let them go. I mean, we couldn't get him to say that these are negative. So every time we put them there, he's like, no, these are positive. At the end of our session, we ended up phoning up these people and they, they were both of them by that time positive and had COVID signs. And we put them in through a second test and then both of them were tested uh -huh. positive. So once again, the dog knows, knows, dog we don't. Wins. Talk about early detection and potentially 100% accuracy or darn near close, which currently no testing method can say that. So I find that amazingly inspiring for, for potential diagnostics, not only in terms of upping the accuracy, but upping how quickly diagnosis could happen sooner rather than later, which is fantastic. And Dr. Anna, with these results, do you think now we'll see like patrol dogs on the streets or in airports? Like what can we do with this information? 
at the airports, that's where we're aiming, and at hospitals, like uh, big sports events, maybe schools, universities that start care homes. What we're aiming at is is trying to teach these kind of sniffer dogs, which already have a profession in sniffing, so that we would just train them to to know a new scent, which is COVID, with, because it wasn't very hard, and that. Uh, these ones uh, will be taught not by urine but with sweat so we've already tested and that seems to be as easy for the dog as the urine we've also tested now saliva and that also is is just as easy so we have no clue what it is that they find but what they find is very specific and it doesn't have to do with only having a high fever. So just, yeah, I mean, they don't find a, a person with a high fever. They find a COVID positive with a high fever or five days before it's going to have a high fever. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Yeah. It's, it's that's so that's cool. incredible. You've got the best job in like the entire world. I find like more and more pet parents are just so fascinated with following you just so they can learn about all the new things that you're bringing to like future generations and and today's generation pertaining to how just amazing dogs are. Having been to your facility, Rodney and I enjoyed not just the tour, but getting to know your team and it's super inspiring that your team is growing. I mean, you have a lot of young scientists, young researchers that you are mentoring. So tell us a little bit about some of the new people who are in your lab right now. Well, uh, actually, talking about this paper, the, the main author, Manal Hemida, is a postdoc that has come to our group from Egypt. And uh, she's such a gem. I must say she's my new star. And she is just, she has this wonderful way of, of looking at data and being as interested as you and me and Rodney are. It's inspiring. It's really inspiring. And it's beautiful that you're letting everyone find their own niche and their own passion. But it's also fantastic that you're knitting these fine young researchers together in a synergistic community to provide this much needed basic but critical science that we all are waiting for. We just can't thank you enough for all that you're doing. Well, thank you for having me and letting me talk about this thing that I so much love. Dr. Anna Helm Bjorgman, Dr. Karen Becker, and to everyone that's watching, thanks for tuning into another episode of the Mind Jam podcast, and we'll see you again. <laughs>